Have you ever considered studying the Middle Ages at postgraduate level? Apply to CEU now. The Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest, Hungary provides intellectually challenging comparative and multidisciplinary postgraduate education on all aspects of the history and culture of the period from 300 to 1600, from late antiquity to the early modern period, Byzantium and the Ottoman Empire. The department currently offers four internationally recognized degree programs, one-year and two-year MA programs and PhD in Medieval Studies, and MA in Cultural Heritage Studies. The language of instruction is English. Generous and merit-based scholarships are available to students from any country. Study with us in a highly stimulating environment and international student body, and apply until February 1st, 2017. For further details, please visit our website at medievalstudies.ceu.edu. This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there. Welcome to Past Perfect. I'm Christopher Melke, and this is CUU Medieval Radio Show in Medieval and Early Modern History and Culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Uh, joining us on our show today is um, Professor Janos M. Bach. Professor Bach is a professor emeritus at the Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest, as well as at the University of British Columbia in Canada. He's also one of the general editors for Central European Medieval Text Series, uh, which produces narrative sources for the region in both uh, Latin and English. So, um, Dr. Bach, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. So um, you've had a very long career, and you've covered a lot of uh, different subjects. One of the things that I first wanted to start on uh, is by asking you um, a little bit about your workship on kingship uh, in medieval Hungary. Would you mind telling us a very little bit about the general patterns and trends and observations you've made about kingship in the medieval period as it pertains to the Hungarian kingdom? Well... I went to school in Göttingen and was a pupil of uh, Professor Percy and Schramm, uh, whose main merit was to point out that uh, matters of power, kingship and herrschaft can be better studied, or at least additional studied, from formal events, rituals and symbols than merely from the written texts. Therefore, uh, since that did not have been done much in the history of medieval Hungary, that's what I turned my interest to uh, already in my dissertation and then in a few other things, and uh, noted that there are some peculiarities uh, of the system of kingship and its structure in the medieval kingdom of Hungary. Of course, it is a latecomer, uh, therefore, the forms and rituals and altogether the perception of the royal office has been elaborated by that time in post-Carolingian Europe. There were several national monarchies besides the empire, although in terms of non-Carolingian territories that is beyond the Franco-German-Italian realm, it is mainly on the margins of Europe in England, Ireland, Scandinavia, Poland, Hungary, and so on. 
So Hungary belongs, the Hungarian kingship belongs to the type of those. It has the character of being significantly centralized, has uh, not that feature what is so typical for both France and Germany, that there are uh, innumerable minor powers that uh, have to be somehow incorporated into the kingdom or the empire, to a lesser extent in England where the Anglo-Saxon kingship was already kind of centralized. It is, of course, a Christian kingship based on the essential teachings of the uh, Roman Church by, in a way, choice, remains in the Latin orb of uh, that culture with minor elements of uh, Byzantine influence, although it is on the margin of these two empires. Now then, I looked at the development of this centralized kingship in terms of its presentation of itself, then later particularly, and that was beyond what I have learned from my masters, became more interested in uh, the reception, the acceptance of that kingship, and that's why already my dissertation is about king and estates, that is, the great men of the realm, who cooperate more or less with the king, but only at the same time legitimize his rule by serving as its counts palatine and treasurer and whatever, bringing their own local power base into that of the kingship. It became very conspicuous that the Kingdom of Hungary never fell into parts, which almost all of the Central and other European countries experienced at some point. There were a decade, maybe, after the uh, end of the founding uh, so called Arpadian dynasty, and then the victorious claimant, uh, an Angevin uh, from Sicily, where some of the major landowners established something of a little petty kingdom of their self, themselves and called the oligarchs. But it is conspicuous even at that point that all these oligarchs call themselves by some kind of a royal office. That is, they justify their power by claiming to be Count Palatine of the King of Hungary, who doesn't exist at that moment or is an irrelevant person. So this is an interestingly unified entity with some sub-regions that have a bit of difference, like Transylvania, then uh, in the south, Slavonia, and then the annexed Croatia from the beginning uh, of the 12th century. It is not surprising, it's a kind of comment on that from a maybe unexpected corner, that this uh, kingdom, which of course had its very nice natural borders with the Carpathian Mountains and then the major rivers of the Rava and Sava in the south, has no significant dialects. The language spoken there, the Magyar language, uh, which assimilated the significant local population at the time of its foundation in the 9th, 10th century, uh, has no major dialects, never had and still doesn't have to our very days. And that shows its uh, kind of strangeness that the Florentine courtier and historian Antonio Bonfini noticed that, and noticed also 
that the king speaks the same language as the people. So there is not the Anglo-Norman court language with the Anglo-Saxon peasants and uh, that kind of higher and lower language difference. Of course, for Bonfini, a Florentine, this is surprising because if he leaves Florence in 15 kilometers in Luca, they don't understand him anymore, and vice versa. So that's the, uh, what interested me, then, this, this centralized character. Then the increasing role of the estates, which in Hungary reached the threshold of what in Poland became the Noble Republic, probably had the country not fallen under Ottoman uh, occupation in the early 16th century, it would have fully developed into that kind of Noble Republic. And then another from the corner where then via Shuramai came uh, is the insignia of the kingship. It has a crown uh, above all, which is only one of two such insignia in the entire medieval Europe that has its own history. It becomes entirely the legitimizing object of rulership and every single king, with one exception maybe, uh, had to be, I mean the king had to be crowned with uh, this very crown, which for example, its parallel, or its, 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 its sister if you so wish, the imperial crown, which is presently in Vienna, it's often referred to as the Vienna crown, which is clearly older, it's a 10th century piece, was several times not used at the coronation of German kings in the later Middle Ages, and that was not a major matter. There was no problem. Uh, while in Hungary, not to be crowned with that crown virtually cancelled your claim to the throne, or, and that was also an interesting piece of exactly the growth of the estates, when it was not available for some reason, as it was not in uh, 1440, then a major theoretical construction had to be made that why this is still valid, claiming that the validity of the crown depends on the will of the estates. That did not get through. That did not get through. It was an attempt. Have an article wrote for the, my very dear friend, Sister Borkowska, about ein Versuch. Ungarn in ein Ständestadt zu verhandeln. It was an attempt to do that, but it didn't quite work. So these were the matters that interested me and to which I could add something about Hungarian kingship. Then became more elaborate in the course of the next generations. Already my old friend Eric Fugedi completed my inquisitive studies on coronations and a more complete version and uh, then, of course, lots of work has been done in the meantime on the crown and the other insignia. At the end, I remained on the margin, and apparently the orb, which is a 14th century piece and probably a temporary replacement, uh, was, so to say, assigned to me that in the volumes uh, on these matters, mostly the orb is what the buck could write and scepter and so on were in the hands of much more trained and more specialized historians and art historians. Okay, well, um, I do want to talk about the insignia in a bit, but um, in terms of the, the central character uh, of the Kingdom of Hungary, 
There are a couple of things that strike me really odd about its character, and um, one is the fact that there's no partable inheritance uh, in medieval Hungary, the, the way it's practiced in Poland or in the German estates. Briefly, could you tell us um, why it is that the Hungarian kingdom for the most part remained, you know, relatively cohesive rather than divide, being divided up amongst the um, children of the monarch. Well, partable inheritance within the dynasty probably mirrored the uh, impartable inheritance among the nobility, uh, which the uh, choice, uh, if you want to put it that way, whether you, you do it uh, that way that the, either the oldest son or the youngest son inherits, sometimes the youngest son inherits, that makes sense because he will uh, be able to carry it on longest. Oh, okay. Right? Hmm. Uh, or then they divide it. I, think, I don't know whether there is any kind of genuinely comparative study which would say why mm -hmm. these differences are all around Europe and beyond. Obviously, the choice is, is, is there. One, one can do with the piece of land or property or power, uh, either this way or that way, and both of them kind of look acceptable custom. It is conspicuous that in the case of the impartable inheritance to the oldest son or something, then we've got the sizable youngest son, younger son population, right. which is then also interesting in its development as for... Uh, whatever military reforms and immigration, clearly the good number, for example, of the uh, noble families who came to Hungary in the early and Middle Ages, and they were sizable numbers, uh, they were mostly younger sons from France and Germany, the Rhineland and Spain and wherever else. While in some way or another the younger sons in, in Hungary are somehow accommodated uh, in one way or another, maybe not dissimilar to the royal family where younger brothers were usually given, at least in the first hundred and some years, were given a piece of the land to govern the so-called Ducatus, the duchy. Right. which was different parts. It wasn't one big piece of land. It was something, parts of it in the northwest and parts of them in the south, somewhere in Bihor, presently in the uh, Romanian part of Eastern Hungary, not in Transylvania. Mm -hmm. But that then was abolished. There was mostly conflict about it. The, these younger brothers didn't like it that way. There was a fight about uh, the crown. But then, within the royal family, they had also the good luck that after a while there, were, there was only one surviving son. That's very often simply demographic good luck and bad luck. You know, they, even one son can make a difference, uh, it can make a problem. Bela IV, son Stephen in the mid-13th century, uh, there the quarrel was between one father and one son. And uh, the country was, for a few years, indeed cut in half. Mm -hmm. But also for, for a few years, for a relatively small, uh, short time. Then in the rest of the uh, Middle Ages, after the extinction of the, of the native dynasty, there was no problem. There was demographically simply no, no claimants, right? No alternatives. All right, we'll have to take a very short break, but we'll be back in a moment. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. I'm Christopher Milke, your host of Past Perfect, and talking here today with uh, Dr. Janos Bach. Um, we thank you very much for joining us today. So, thank you to invite me after the commercial. <laughs> 
So I wanted to spend a little bit of time uh, in this portion talking about the sort of uh, insignia uh, right. that's used in medieval Hungary. My understanding is that there is, uh, let's see, there's the holy crown, there's the coronation mantle, there's the orb from the 14th century, and then there's the scepter. Right. Am I missing anything? Well, there used to probably be a, a royal sword, and that must have been around, not so specific as all that. Mm-hmm. There most likely have been other insignia. There is a reference to a royal flag once in the sources which must have been there. To begin with, all these are absolutely conventional and typical for all uh, European, Latin European countries. This shows that the whole institution and its symbology, the objects were imported from the very beginning. Maybe the very object was imported in the beginning because there is very short reference that the first king, Stephen I, has been sent a crown by Pope Sylvester II uh, on the exhortatio of the emperor. So somehow emperor and, and pope at that moment of the Ottonian renovatio not unthinkable in a joint operation, sent a crown. Then there is some talk about a lance, which could have very well been similar copy of the holy lance than what the Polish king uh, got from Otto III at Miesno in 1000, which is still in the treasury of the Babel in Krakow that the Hungarian king would have also gotten this lands is very weakly documented. There is one coin of St. Stephen's which has the circumscription Lantea Regis and shows somehow a hand holding a fanen lance, a lance with a little flag on it. This kind of fanen lance used to be in a way in the transfer of power Sometimes it can be seen as enfeoffment, if you want to look in that uh, late medieval legal term, which of course is irrelevant for the High Middle Ages. So there could have been, uh, it does not feature, as a matter of fact, neither does the Holy Lands, does not feature extensively in the coronation and other representation of the emperors or of the kings of Poland or of Hungary. A lance features, however, then, which was taken by one of the Henrys who invaded Hungary and interfered with uh, uh, the succession and was reportedly taken by him and together with a crown sent back, in quotation marks, to Rome and forcing this idea that the original crown was sent by the Pope. Something of that sort, a crown and a lance, assumed to be that of the King of Hungary, was seen much later somewhere in the Lateran by an observer, I forgot his name. There is more legend and, and tradition to that than, than reality. The crown, of course, which we now know, is later than that. I'm not the, the expert to go into the details of it. It's, it consists of two parts. There is a lower kind of a ring uh, of a crown, a, a kind of diadema, quite large, 
therefore in all likelihood a female crown originally precisely datable because of the enamels on it uh, depicting Byzantine rulers. It's uh, datable to 1074, 77 or something like that, almost by the year. Of course, how it came here, whether it was a present to the wife of one of the Hungarian kings or the Byzantine lady in high standing, that's not clear. Then there is the other part of the crown, is a two bands. Uh, it's not a closed crown, it's not a camilacion, uh, that is that kind of, of hat or, or cap, but uh, features in Byzantine and then also in Western tradition. It's two bands crossing each other, thus suggesting something like a closed crown or bugelkrone, a crown with uh, bands or whatever you want to call them. And they have Latin inscriptions, so they are obviously from another object. They are bent. Uh, they were not originally for that purpose. The two were together at an unknown moment of time. Uh, there had been speculations of when that happened. I don't think that any one of them can be uh, accepted without contradiction. Uh, but at the same time suggest that making crowns and keeping them in the royal treasury and making another crown and making a, again a third one was absolutely normal in the Middle Ages that ex post they become sometimes the very crown like in Hungary and partially in the empire but never in France or England. That is a coincidence. So why that is that that is a question for historical anthropology, whether that kind of fetishistic clinching to a piece of uh, golden jewelry uh, is characteristic for whatever primitive mind or whatever else it may be. Uh, the papal legate in 1308 is, uh, implies that a little, because the crown is not in his hand at that point, it is in the hand of uh, one of the mighty lords, and they have to crown Caroberto, the Sicilian candidate, uh, who depends, uh, decides on the female line from the Arpads, uh, with a crown which the legate has made and declared canonically and legally as the valid crown. He, in his canonical legal Western, if you want to put it that way, or Roman thinking, is totally satisfied with that. But the Hungarian lords don't like it. They want to have that very piece quasi in easit depositum, as though the royal power would be incorporated in it. And it's quite clear that Gentile de Montefiore looks down at them and says, well, you know, barbarians don't know what it's a canonical decision. When if I, if in the name of a pope I make a crown a crown, then that crown is the crown. And when I said that the other one is anathema, then the other one is anathema. Not for them. Make your life on it. <laughs> so that's the story of the crown. Clearly, let's say, certainly by 1300, as the just told anecdote proves, it is specific. It has to be the very crown. Although it is written down only in 1440 by in a very nice piece of writing, the diary of a lady in waiting of the queen who stole this crown from Visegrad 
in order to crown a baby child of Luxembourg, Hexburg, Passide. And she uh, spelled it out for the first time in writing, known to us in writing, that there are three rules, drei Gesatz, in the Kingdom of Hungary, that the king has to be crowned by the Archbishop of Estergom in Székesfehérvár Alba Regia and with the so-called holy crown, with the very crown which she, she has uh, acquired for her mistress. Uh, but obviously that was the case for quite a long time, well before Madame Kotanir has written that down. Now, ancient pieces, of course, guaranteed is the coronation mantle. That was a so-called pluviale, one of the major coats or mantles of a churchman, a clergyman, uh, which has been embroidered and presented to the chapter of Alba Regia, of Sekeshvayervar, by Queen Gisela, uh, Queen of St. Stephen, datable to 1031, I think so, which was made at some point in course of time, maybe somewhere in at the end of the 12th century, into a coronation mantle. Therefore, it is the oldest insignia, but it was not an insignia right, I in see. that sense. The scepter is an interesting piece because it has a very beautiful, it's a, it's a, it's a, has a glass uh, crystal on the top of it. It's a short scepter. There are short and long scepters in the European practice. Between scepter and lance, the transition is unclear in also in the text, yeah, and that is a very ancient piece, that's Iranian Sassanidic piece. How did that get into the royal treasury and made into a scepter? We have no idea what its present position in its gold and the filigree around it, etc., has been studied extensively. And pointing again to this kind of late 12th century, so it's not impossible that the ensemble dates from that time, the transformation of the, and maybe even the, the, the crown being put together at that point. Mm -hmm. The orb is a modern one, it's 1300, uh, that I was able to date uh, exactly on the basis of a coin minted in Zagreb in, I think, 1302 or three, and was prepared for the coronation of the Anjou claimant of Caroberto, because the original seems to have been lost or vanished. It has a peculiarity uh, for a uh, Latin kingdom. It has a double cross on top of it, which would be more typical for the Eastern, for the Byzantine symbology. Therefore, it has been argued, and that's an interesting argument, and my teacher from Budapest, Josef Deer, and my teacher from Göttingen and Percy and Schramm have quarreled over that in a very ugly manner, as a matter of fact. They argued, in a way, a bit of circular argument, that uh, since this was made in this 1301, he accepted my dating, at which time, obviously, several people were alive who saw at least the 1290 coronation of the last Arpadian king. Because they knew about an old witch had this double cross on it. Because why would a Pope-supported Latin, uh, Sicilian, Italian, French, uh, person manufacture something of this sort. Thus, this has to be dated into the time when somebody who knew matters Byzantine. Who is that? That's Bela the Third Alexios, uh, who grew up in Byzantium. And therefore, 
must have known that the Byzantines had such orb. No Byzantine orb survived. Therefore, this argument is on, on a, based on a non-existing... I mean, right, right. It's a complicated circular. Somehow he is right, but that is not, 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 not conclusive. Not conclusive. Mm-hmm. And then in the meantime has been done more work on it. What I did not know is that it has a, a crest, um, an Arpadian Anjou uh, split crest on it, so it's obviously datable that it's, uh, the Anjou always used this double crest, and it has a little sign, uh, I don't remember how I, what it's called heraldically, suggesting that it's a, a cadet line. Uh-huh. That uh, he knows that he is a young, uh, he's a junior Anjou, I mean the main Anjou lines is of course in France and Sicily. Uh, so at that point he accepts him being the young king, Turnia, uh, Turnier color or something like that. What is called that little thing? Uh, I overlooked that. Is it the not being S- some S- little a uh, little bit of a red dot in the middle somewhere? Oh, okay. I, I overlooked that. Or not being a heraldist, I didn't didn't see that. It's a, from a very simple gold blech. Uh, it is quite possible that they prepared it for this purpose until we find the real one. But that did never come up and so a, in a way, second-rate object survived and remained the orb. Because such such quality gold is mostly used for burial crowns, which I are see. anyhow, once for all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's the little game with that, with that orb. That's mm-hmm. a, funny story. The original orb having been lost is documented by the fact that at a point when the uh, young king Wenceslas uh, Lodislas is supposed to appear in full regalia, he is carrying in his right hand not an orb but the relic of St. Stephen, St. Stephen's right hand, the holy Dexter. That is clearly something's missing, mm-hmm. and a relic is used as an insignia. It is a perhaps unique case in medieval Europe. A good number of insignia do have relics in them, or associated with. So, for example, the crown of the Czech kings was kept on the head reliquary of St. Wenceslas. Right. thus acquiring the holiness. As a matter of fact, no queen was crowned with that crown on the but that's what it was planned for. Right. And then, when this Hungarian uh, holy crown is missing in 1440, then they take a crown from the head reliquary of St. Stephen to crown uh, the young Pole uh, as king of Hungary. That, that so, that there is the, the re- relic's relationship to the insignia, but in this case it was the relic itself. He was marching with whichever form that relic at that point may have had. Very interesting. Time for commercial? Well, yes, I'll have to take a short break right now. Right. Please enjoy okay. the music. Welcome back. Uh, this is Christopher Melke, and here today we're talking with uh, Professor Janusz Bach. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. 
Okay, so um, we've talked a lot in the first two segments about um, a lot of the work that you've done on uh, kingship and royal insignia in Hungary, and I wanted to spend this uh, particular portion talking about the work you've done on a series called Laws in Medieval Hungary. Would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, aspects of legal tradition in the Medieval Kingdom, please? Well, to begin with the five volumes of the Medieval Laws of Hungary, goes back to the initiative of a very strange gentleman, Charles Clark Jr., publisher, graduate of uh, Slavic studies at uh, Harvard, uh, who is a one-man operation publishing journals and books on Slavic and uh, related subjects. Now for some 40-50 years, still keeping up, uh, though he then sold some of the journals to a major publishing house. It was his idea in the early 1980s to bring out bilingual editions of the medieval and modern laws of Eastern Europe. The Hungarian would have been one. He planned, of course, Bulgaria, Russia, whatever else. Indeed, brought out a couple of volumes on Russian laws. And then the Hungarian laws he entrusted to modern historian in Montreal, who then uh, recruited the best Hungarian legal historian, George Bonish, to start with the early Middle Ages. And Bonish realized that he cannot do that alone, so he turned to uh, my late lamented friend Jim Sweeney, who was a pupil of Brian Tierney, a historian of ecclesiastical history, uh, wrote about papal legates in Hungary and that kind of matters. And then Jim recruited me to join that. Bonish, alas, died even before the first volume was done. And Jim stayed aboard for a while, and then I recruited all kinds of other people. So de facto I became editor-general of the five volumes, although never signed as such. Now, uh, the matter with uh, this project is that there is no medieval kingdom at all which would have had its entire statute law published in one consistent series. It is therefore interesting from two points of view. One, the legal development in Hungary, and two, what was not in the laws, what kind of issues what usually legal and related development contains, what is not regulated in statute law. Now, uh, the five volumes contain statute law, that is written law issued by the king or by the king and the gathering of the nobles, the diet, the parliamentum together, while we are very well aware of it that most of the legal practice was based on custom. That custom was, in a manner of speaking, summarized in our fifth volume, in the so-called three-part uh, law, the tripartitum, compiled by a politician lawyer, Ishvan Verböci, in uh, the early 16th century, printed in Vienna in 1516. That's our fifth volume, containing the customary law as far as it was possible to compile. Another interesting matter is that there is, in at least not in the region, Poland, Bohemia and uh, other 
countries nearby, including Austria, etc., that the early laws of the uh, 11th, 12th centuries survived in a written form in Hungary, even though they mostly survived in late manuscripts, some of them only in 15th, 16th century manuscripts, where, of course, you are puzzled to what extent are they precise. There is only one of them which uh, you may risk to say is warranted uh, in its authenticity, one of the laws of the first king of St. Stephen, or great part of it, survived in a copy of the very early 12th century in a codex in the monastery of Admont in nearby Austria. Mm -hmm. There we may say that it's close enough to its possible origin to trust its being authentic. Uh, the rest of them are in a good part borrowings from nearby, say, Bavarian, etc. laws, which is understandable since the written material was obviously generated by the learned clergy that may have come from those parts of the empire or northern Italy, and they brought with them the formulations and customs of those parts. There are some where there is absolutely no other evidence that they were practiced in uh, historical reality, that they resemble very much for example, a Bavarian law about royal judges, but we have no evidence that such royal judges existed besides some kind of a, a specific region. Now, as I say, we brought out these five volumes, of which the first volume cannot follow any kind of a critical edition because there is none. There is a reasonably usable edition which everybody accepts, that we have taken over, serious revision of those, really comparing even these late manuscripts with each other, which I have to admit we felt unnecessary because they are so late that their comparison does not really help us too far. That is not quite the case, and a very fine young scholar, Monika Janosi, worked on these and has shown that there is a possibility of making a really uh, somewhat more elaborate critical edition. She died quite young, and unfortunately only a few excellent studies of hers survive. Volume 1 goes through the Arpadian age down to 1300. Naturally, there is a relatively limited amount of legislation of that time. Strangely, there is the 11th century and very early 12th, then there is nothing for 150 or more years. Nothing survived or nothing was copied later. And then at the end we have the first more or less parliamentary style decreta that can be regarded and uh, has been so defined by a historian of uh, legislation of the medieval states, Armin Wolf, a friend of ours, as the first real legislation uh, proper, which are kind of laws and not a mixture of kind of moral teachings and temporary ephemeral measures, but some kind of legal character. Systematic legal collections will not come about until much much later under Sigismund and Matthias and then 
finally the tripartite. So far the first volume, the second and the third volume, one the Anjou and Luxembourg period and the second of King Matthias Corvinus is based on a critical edition which was prepared by Professor Bonisch and some of his collaborators. While then the fourth volume, The Laws between 1490 and 1526, the Jagiellonian period, have never been published in this form. They were in manuscript collection of a gentleman by the name of Ferenc Döri, long died, and uh, our edition is the first printed edition of those very voluminous legal decisions in diets and parliaments that met not even once a year, but sometimes even twice or three times a year. And that is a rather peculiar volume and rather problematic because many of their so-called decreta are nothing more than political programs of the assembled nobility, uh, which the king often did not even approve of and sanctify and issue. Uh, so that volume is, and in that sense, we broke our principle, publishing a complete corpus of legal documents. We had to abbreviate there. The repetitions, etc., rule them out. However, for the learned reader, the volume contains a CD with the entire Latin text, non-abbreviated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not all of them translated, that would have been a much larger volume, we ran out of funding, etc., etc. There is otherwise not much different from the rest of Europe in these laws. The early ones, as I say, are for the region unique that they are written down in that form. For Poland and Bohemia, we have references in narrative sources to some kind of legal announcements but not verbatim, no such texts. For the later ones, there is clearly uh, influence from the countries where uh, the kings come from, there is no question. Some Sicilian influence in the Angevin period, clearly there is some kind of borrowing from imperial practice under Sigismund of Luxembourg, while a more or less autochthonous legal development is traceable in the late uh, 15th, early 16th century. That is connected with what, again, Professor Bonish has very nicely elaborated upon, the growth of a legally trained intelligentsia in late medieval Hungary. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting company, these people. They are not university graduates. They are trained in practice of the law, they come up in the ranks. They are notaries or judges' helpers in the county first, perhaps, then getting into the major royal courts and gradually growing into kind of lawyers proper, although they never uh, acquired a law degree, what would have been characteristic for uh, France or England. I know a little bit about the development of universities within Hungary. Do you think it's the fact that the universities of Pécs and Oboda in the 14th and 15th centuries were short-lived? Do you think that might be a reason? Well, uh, they never had a faculty of law, as far as I remember. I see. They were always starting out as artes and theology. Mm -hmm. 
but then they did not materialize this right. We do have some lawyers who went to law school in Vienna mm-hmm. or Krakow because they were existing universities and not those which folded in Hungary. Why they folded? I think that was partially the lack of uh, royal support and may have something to do and about that. Uh, one always has to turn to the excellent article of Fugedi about Verba Voland, about the rather low literacy of uh, Hungarian legal procedures. Very much has been transacted in very late times, merely orally, and for this, these practical lawyers were absolutely sufficient with a barely trained notary at hand. An important element of the administration of the law in Hungary was the role of the convents and monasteries as the so-called places of authentication. They featured quite early in the laws, uh, sending out a witness for uh, different kinds of legal transactions, executiones, whereby execution does not necessarily mean the chopping off of the hand of somebody, right. it's just the executing a legal matter, which is administered by a royal man, a bailiff of some sort, and a witness from the nearby convent. That convent man writes up what has transpired, maybe an inquiry, an inquest, or the property, or whatever, and sends it up to the court. So there again, the literacy is in clerical hands, who are otherwise not involved in the decision of justice, of course, that's, that's not their business. They are the ones who keep the record. The decision is then in the county or the royal court. Courts uh, operate in the counties under the chairmanship of the Ishpa, the Comes of the county, or in his absence, which is increasingly the case because that's some kind of a big man who is at court and is Ishpa of several counties. It's the Vice Comes, Vice Comes, Al Ishpan, and assessors of the nobility, elected assessors, jurors of sorts of the nobility. It's not a jury trial. Mm-hmm. They don't know about jury trials. The kind of common law precedence style is not elaborately there, although references to similar decisions seem to be. However, and that's then the big anticlimax to five volumes of work, uh, 25 years of, of hard work on many of my colleagues, very rarely is there reference to these laws in court. Very rarely. I see. They have been announced, they seem to be some kind of a guideline of the royal intent or the consensus intent of king and nobility, but explicit reference that, you know, and we decided on the basis of 1472 paragraph, paragraph so and so, is absolutely the rarest bird, I think, in the two volumes, the critical edition published by Bonish and others, who had full access and manpower to check in the Hungarian archives, etc., they found half a dozen of references in the entire century or something, explicit references. Then there are the non-explicit references which says, according to the decrees, mm-hmm. that they sometimes say. And frequently, there is no such decree. 
known to us. <laughs> but it's they believe that it's not naturally in the early period. That is always said. Now that's that's uh, Europe wide that it's said that following the laws of the holy kings of Saint Stephen, etc., who doesn't have, or we don't know whether they had such a law, what they what they refer to. We're going to have to take a very short break, but we'll be back uh, in just a minute with the conclusion of the show. Please enjoy the music. For this last little five-minute bit, um, uh, would it be possible to ask you about um, current or ongoing projects of yours? Uh, well, it is so that what we did not touch upon so far is, and it was very close to my heart, uh, the series of Central European medieval texts, Yes, which we uh, founded with Gabor Klanitsai, but uh, quite frankly, Gabor having had uh, many other tasks in the past few years, particularly in the Collegium, it was uh, to a considerable extent on my shoulder, mainly uh, less so the first volume of Simon of Keza that was done by not the immediate supervision of mine, but then the rest, more or less I have been managing that series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one may say that then the final decision on annotations and format, etc., was mine, even if I did not sign for it, save the recent volume on uh, Anonymous and Rogerius, where the Rogerius I translated myself uh, together with my friend Martin Rady, and presently still in the works is the Chronicle of the Czechs by Cosmos of Prague, which our graduate and my friend Petra Mutlova and myself have translated in the first round, again Martin Rady in the second, and that is in the works and still needs a little bit of my attention, should be out in uh, 2014. And then ongoing is the project with Laszlo Vespremi and myself. We are doing a new translation with a new Latin text of the so-called Illuminated Chronicle, the formerly Vienna Chronicle, uh, the Chronicle which, which contains in a way, the most extensive uh, Hungarian historiographic tradition picks up parts of the the text itself, probably goes back to the 11th century and has been augmented and augmented, borrowed from Simon of Kezas, borrowed from here and there, and its final form in the 1340s or so is indeed the best complete tradition that became then in the form of uh, the Chronicle of Johann Turozzi, uh, the first printed one, and from then on became for the whole early modern period the uh, history. So we are working now on the translation of that chronicle that had uh, earlier some English translations when Corvina brought out facsimile volumes and with some people did the German and the English, which was not on a scholarly level, it's fine, not uh, totally readable mm-hmm. stuff, but it was. It's not decently annotated and right. so on, so that we are what we are. That's still in my hands and, so to say, on my shoulder. Um, I have a copy of the German facsimile, and I, for the most part, it's very good. I have no good And it's good reading. Yes. It's, good reading. <laughs> yeah. it's quite interesting. It's obvious that it's in from many parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are you know, the whole dozens of chapters which show a different kind of hand and mm-hmm. way of thinking. Particularly, there is this kind of in the middle, this Gestalt of Ladislaus Regis, rounds and Ladislaus and the intrigues. 
somehow reminding one of the remnants of at some point chivalrous romance mm -hmm, mm -hmm. either about Ladislas or about another figure there is a figure a strange figure about Ropos or something unknown from any other source and so it may have been an imaginary figure like Roland or anybody else uh, one of the last projects of the colleague in Budapest was uh, on medievalism. Now, I got into this medievalism matter, essentially on the prodding of Gabor. We already had an international conference here, more or less called by me, on uses and abuses of the Middle Ages. Big volume came out of it. So that's, that's how, how it started. And then at the Collegium Budapest it was followed up by several focus groups, research groups on alternative antiquities, etc., etc. The last uh, project included also a volume on forgery and authenticity. Okay. Uh, so things like the fake manuscripts in Bohemia of which Václav Hanka found, then uh, fake vases, Greek vases, then the so-called Sylvester bull in 18th century Hungary, then fake gravestones in a, a Crimean uh, cemetery, that's one of the entertaining ones, then fake by a gentleman by the name of Hase, uh, was a very well-known and, and, and accepted scholar, and added a piece to the addition of uh, an important Byzantine source, which he simply dreamt up himself. <laughs> so I've got these articles, had these articles at hand, added <clears throat> my small piece about how the uh, Hungarian guest of the Anonymous became part of the National Pantheon via the poetry of uh, Mihai Vörösmarty, okay. uh, The Flight of Zalán, uh, that made it into, in the same way, I think, as uh, uh, Lönnroth made Weinemönen through his or whose Kalevala, the image of the nation. So that volume is presently at the last, very last stage, that again we do together with Gabor and my friend Patrick Geary, mm -hmm. but due to different circumstances there again. It was mostly in my hands. They always refer to it as my volume, which is impertinent because it's uh, a joint project. But it will go to the publishers in the next month or something, so I'm more or less at the end of this work. They had two volumes of it. The first volume I had nothing to do with was more art and architectural history that was done by Gabor and Patrick. That's out now. So it's time now to get the second volume. It sounds very exciting, and we look forward to it coming out. And um, on, on a personal note, I have to say that uh, part of the reason I ended up at CEU and ended up uh, researching my topic on the Hungarian queens has a lot to do with reading um, the two articles that you wrote on the subject and finding it absolutely fascinating. So it's a, it's a real honor and pleasure Lattery. for me. Well, it's, it's, real, it's a real honor and pleasure for me to, to interview you, uh, uh, Professor Bach, thank you very much for being on our show today. It was a pleasure for me, anytime. And for the listeners back home, be sure to tune in up to us uh, on the web at www.medievalradio.org. Be sure to send us an email to medievalradio at ceu.hu, and be sure to like us on Facebook as well. We thank you very much for listening. Bye.
Have you ever considered studying the Middle Ages at postgraduate level? Apply to CEU now. The Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest, Hungary provides intellectually challenging comparative and multidisciplinary postgraduate education on all aspects of the history and culture of the period from 300 to 1600, from late antiquity to the early modern period, Byzantium and the Ottoman Empire. The department currently offers four internationally recognized degree programs, one-year and two-year MA programs and PhD in Medieval Studies, and MA in Cultural Heritage Studies. The language of instruction is English. Generous and merit-based scholarships are available to students from any country. Study with us in a highly stimulating environment in international student body, and apply until February 1st, 2017. For further details, please visit our website at medievalstudies.ceu.edu.